If you have your Bibles, would you take them out and open them however you get your Bible, whether it's on an app or electronically or in a Kindle or paper form. Uh, we want to invite you to open those up and uh, we're going to read together here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. Go ahead and grab that and open up to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're in the middle of a, a series that's going to last for a little bit, Letters to Leaders. Um, these uh, are out of the pastoral epistles. That's a fancy way of saying epistle is a letter and pastoral are leaders. And so it is uh, Paul writing to some young leaders. Uh, Timothy, some may say, was just in his mid to uh, late teens. And so students, you want to listen in on this. You want to hear what God has to say. Because if Paul was saying it to, to Timothy as a teenager, maybe Paul has something to say to you as a teenager. And there might be something for you in the midst of this. So let's hear from 1 Timothy Chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. As I urge you, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. I'm going to go on a couple verses. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Here ends the reading. This is the Word of God for the people of God. And our response is, thanks be to God. Well, like I said, we're in the middle of our series, uh, Letters to Leaders. And, and so we want you to, to lean in. If you weren't here last week, uh, we looked at uh, something from Titus. And I wanted you to see what we learned from Titus. And, and uh, one of those things that is kind of guiding this whole principle is, a, is from Dr. Tim Mackey. And he writes that the gospel must prove itself in the public square. Christianity is compelling when it looks culturally similar to the culture that it finds itself in, but is based on different, a different value system and devoted to a different God. And we said that that, that God, of course, is the one who looks and loves like Jesus, the one who was shown to us perfectly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but we said that last week in Titus, that we are called as leaders to exhibit the behaviors of Jesus in our everyday life. The behaviors of love, of service, of humility, many other things. And Titus uh, reminded us that each of us, you and me, have some area where we are called to lead in our everyday lives. And so we're going to lean in now as Paul turns to Timothy because we want to look at what God was calling Timothy to. 
through Paul, his mentor. And so Timothy is mentioned in the book of Acts. We find that he was raised in Lystra, and he was raised in Judaism by his his grandmother and mom, and they converted to Christianity as they heard this. When Paul found his way into Lystra, or Lystra, however you say it, uh, he uh, just was so impressed with this young man who was raised and trained in the Scriptures and knew so much about the faith. In fact, Paul was so impressed by this young man that he invited him to become a mission partner. That meant he left grandma and mom at home and traveled with Paul and they started churches and Paul began to mentor him and show him the ropes and began to give him leadership. He began to be more and more trusted by Paul. In fact, later on, by the time we get to this letter, as we see, he is asked to take leadership of the church in Ephesus. So we need to look and see what was Ephesus all about? What was going on? Let's, let's learn a little bit just about this church. The word itself, Ephesus, means desire. It was a desirable place to live. Many people moved there. It was a big city. That's why Paul wanted to start a church there because they thought that would be a good place to go. But like last week when we learned about Crete, the birthplace of Zeus, the seducer, and how they were called to live differently in the culture, with different values. In Ephesus, they believed that the goddess Artemis, or if you're Roman, Diana, had fallen right there, and they built a stadium around the place, and they would worship her. It was, it was a culture that was mixed with sex and money. Sex used to sell things, and money used in sexual purposes. And so... I don't, I don't know. Is there another culture like that today? Or did it die off back then? Uh, okay, you're, you're tracking with me. And this church lost its way while Paul was in prison. He had had to leave there. He was taken captive. And while that was going on, some leaders in, in charge began to take some things in some funny ways. Now, I want us not to get too down on Ephesus because it had its moments where things were really good. It's not a bad church. In fact, Paul commends it. If you want to turn over uh, to Ephesians, you can look. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 1 and begin at verse 15. Paul is writing to this this little church in Ephesus. And he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. This was not a church that was just a terrible mix of people. It was awful. It was just a church, like many churches, not a bad church, but could get off track. In fact, we know that it wasn't a bad church because later on when things got rough in Jerusalem, the Apostle John relocated to the church in Ephesus. And in fact, he brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, to live in Ephesus, to be cared for by this church. So it couldn't have been a terrible church, but it was a church that kept losing its way. In fact, by the time John writes the, the book of Revelation, he writes a letter to the church and says, you've lost your first love. Return. So it was a church that was great in faith and yet could also lose its way. A church not too unlike many churches today, including ours. Is that okay for me to say? This great church. I love this church. I've been here almost 11 years. 
But we can lose our way. And so it's why we have books like Timothy that call us back and show us some things. So it wasn't a bad church. It was just off track. So how did this church get back on track? Well, that's what we're going to look into. I believe that Paul gives Timothy three things to help this church get back on track. He sends him there and he says, these are the things that need to happen. And I think we can see this in just these few verses And I believe that they will help you as you are called to lead, wherever you are called to lead, lead in your home, in your work, in your school, as a, as a, as a student, as a parent, you'll begin to see some of this. So let's look in these. Are you ready? Ready? Okay, good. Let's look. First, he tells Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Now this seems, uh, kind of like, duh, but, it's a little bit harder than you think. Because what this means is that Christian leaders remain even when it's difficult and the outcome is uncertain. Now we, we love these examples. We really do. I mean, we didn't, they didn't make a movie about wimpy heart. They, they made a, they made a movie about brave heart, right? It was difficult and he went in. He wanted to do that. They, they didn't make a movie called Spectator in the Roman Colosseum. No, they made a movie called Gladiator, right? I mean, that's, that's, leaders are people who get into the fray and they don't leave when it's difficult. It's kind of that old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And so Paul wanted to say to Timothy, I know things are off track. I know some of these things can be difficult. But I'm calling you to remain in Ephesus. I think a really good example of this, especially when it comes to uncertainty, um, is our own Pastor Kyle. And I, I asked him if I could share this story because I want you to get to know the kind of person that Kyle is. It was something that, that really impressed me as we were beginning that interview process. Kyle and Morgan had moved and taken their very first ministry assignment as associate pastors in Belleville, Illinois. And when they were there, it wasn't long after that, that they had had gotten there and unpacked and all of that, that their senior pastor said, hey, I'm moving to Grand Rapids. Now, you may not know this, but in our form of church government, when a senior pastor resigns, guess who also has to resign? The associate pastor. And to his credit, Pastor Craig, who I love, uh, wanted them to come along. But they sensed that there was something that God wanted them to do there. So with the uncertainty of who was coming next, with the uncertainty of whether that person would want them to stay on, with the uncertainty of wondering what it would be, it took on more responsibility to help that church in the transition period, which can be one of the most difficult times in church life. But I think a good example of remaining in the midst is an example of Pastor Kyle. This is one of the reasons why I thought, that's a guy we want to have. We want to have him come and minister here. And so God was faithful. What a great thing. Remain. Where are you called to remain? Let's let's move on, because I want to make sure we get through all three of these. Number two, and this one's a little difficult, because sometimes the church has made it their purpose, their sole purpose, to rebuke. And, and Paul does say to Timothy, rebuke the current leader's 
teachings. He said there is a part of leadership that is about correction, that is about rebuking. And we see that, uh, so I want you to see what was going on. So the scholars that I read said that some were misapplying Jewish teachings, and so they were forbidding certain foods from being eaten, so they were kind of imposing Judaism's dietary laws again. Um, some were saying that they were uh, using current philosophy. There was philosophy about being extra dedicated to knowing things, and so you should get rid of marriage, and, and it's just not worth doing, and those kinds of things. And so... They were forbidding marriage from happening. There were some that were confused. They were stressing controversial speculations as the as to the path of spiritual progress. The fancy word for this is asceticism. It's where the flesh is bad and and things are terrible. So you should starve yourself so that you can be more holy. You should maybe even harm yourself so that you could be holy. I think our closest equivalent to it today is jogging. Um. It's this idea that your flesh and your body is bad. And it must be brought into, uh, by, by harming yourself, it, must, it makes you more holy, it makes you closer to God. These teachings have an interesting thing, and this is just, you know, as I was looking at them and studying them, all of these teachings are in some way connected that they're saying that some part of life, which God created, is bad, or it's wrong, or it's not good enough. So in these three instances, food, certain foods are bad. Um, your bodies are bad or not good. Or sex is bad and not good. And so stay away from marriage and those kinds of things. The other thing that happens when these teachings were brought is that it also sets up the leader to be the one who gets to determine who or what is good enough. Now, leaders rarely want to admit that, but that is true. When we set those things up, we also can set up a system where I'm up here and I'll, I'll tell you guys what's in or out, what's good or bad, okay? And, and Paul tells Timothy, no, that, that has to be rebuked. I want to spend just a little bit of time here. Um, I, I said last week, I, I'm, I'm naturally a counselor. I, I love to be with people. I, I'm not in the rebuking business. I have learned as a counselor that sometimes there are times when I have to step in and say, that thing that you're doing is harmful. And we need to find ways to change that. So can I gently take some authority from Paul and say, let's look at our myths? Because it's they're mine too. It's not like they're not hours together. But let's look at some of these myths. Maybe one of them is, is the self-made person. What a myth that is. I mean, I don't know about you, but the way I learned it, to be made into any kind of person requires two other persons. Is that, is that safe to say on Family Sunday while the kids are here? And it requires a lot of certain things happening and taking place. It requires a, a mom who's willing to, to allow this being to be inhabit her body. It, it requires a lot of what God does in the womb to create life. And last time I checked, I have never seen a baby born with bootstraps. So that you could pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. 
I know that's an old saying. But if you have boots, it's because God has blessed you and someone has given you something or has given you an education that allowed you to earn something that you could then use to help yourself and better your situation. Do you see how this can become a myth? That we can rely on ourselves more than on what God has established as the way of community and the way community blesses individuals. Maybe it's the myth of self-righteousness that what I do or what I don't do makes me more holy than you. Is that written by Dr. Seuss? Um, you know, churches can really get in on this one. Maybe you were raised in one of those churches where if it was fun, it's pretty questionable. It's probably on the line somewhere. Maybe you grew up with no playing cards in the house or no movies in the house or no television in the house or, uh, you know, all the line, the list goes on and on and on and on. We've all been there, haven't we? We've seen these things. And sometimes, I just want to say this, sometimes churches took those stands for good reasons. Please don't hear me saying that those were bad reasons. I, I've heard some of the reasons, and, and some of them are pretty good reasons. The problem is, is that so, uh, over time, it kind of morphs into something like, well, I don't watch TV, but they do. Mm, look at me. I must be more holy than them. Or I don't go to those kinds of places, but I know they do. We can do this. These are myths that have to be rebuked. Maybe one of the ones that is causing the most controversy in our churches and churches around, uh, around our country today is the political choice myth. It's the myth that who I vote for will determine the future of everything that's good or bad in my world. Now, I'm not, I'm not picking on any party. I'm picking on both parties. And the third or fourth or fifth one if they invent themselves in, in anywhere in the near future. But it is this idea that my vote or your vote will determine everything. And if you vote for that candidate, you can't be a good person. If you vote for that candidate, then that makes you a better person or a better Christian or a better whatever. Sometimes, folks, I just want to say this, sometimes I feel like churches are more concerned with who's in the White House than who's on the throne. It's true. And that has to be rebuked. Now, don't hear me saying don't go vote and, you know, choose your candidate or whatever. Do whatever you want. But we are called as a church to hold it lightly because we know that no matter who's in the White House, Jesus Christ is on the throne. And His call in our life is to love. And we're going to see that here in just a minute. But this is a myth that we are called to let go of and I think need to be rebuked for. And last, one, one more, our personal viewpoint. And that is that my view of a person is the view is God's view of the person. So if if I see them as bad, then God sees them as bad. If if I see them as good, then God must see them as good. If I see them as dangerous, then God must be afraid of them too. Do you see how small that makes God? It brings God down to our level. And that also includes the person that you look at in the mirror. Teenager? We do a lot of mirror looking in our teen years. 
And sometimes we can do that. We can say, my view of that person in the mirror must be what God feels about me. And I want to tell you that that is a myth and a lie. That what God sees in that mirror is someone so valuable that He was willing to come and give His very life for you. Never let the myth of your own viewpoint of yourself be the determining factor of how you think God sees you. This myth has to be rebuked. For God sees you as of ultimate worth. So all of these must be rebuked. But it's not so that uh, the leader can stand up and give a, get a lot of power and find his way. But it's because of, and this is going to lead us to our third thing, it is because the leader is to, to know the goal. And Paul reminds Timothy of the goal. If you want to, you can uh, turn back in 1 Timothy. I'm going to get there. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And First uh, Timothy chapter 1, you can look at verse 5. The goal of this command is what? Love. Now, I want, I want to stop here for just a second. Because the goal of the command is love. Yes, it's to bring about love within the community. But the goal of the command is also to be done in love. I want us to, we're going to look at that here in just a second. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and, and sincere faith. So let's look at that. Because Christian leaders stick to the goal. What's the goal? Love. We stick to the goal. Whether that's in your home, your school, your family, uh, your workplace, the goal of the Christian leader, the Christian disciple, the follower of Jesus, is love. Now, that word is the word agape, which I know many of you are familiar with. We've looked at it time and time again. It is sacrificial love. It is the love that was displayed on the cross. That God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. But we also see this in all of the behaviors of Jesus. All of these behaviors require a sacrifice. To love the outsider requires you to sacrifice your own ego to go to the person that's on the outside. To call everyone to Himself requires you sacrificing again that ego that says, I just want the cool kids around me. The cool kids, but the cool kids. Eating and drinking with those that society deems unfit. Whew. You can really take a hit. Going to the mentally unwell, they have nothing to give back to you. Enduring criticism, are you kidding me? If I let that stand, then what kind of man will I be? I gotta man up and go attack that stuff. Forgive enemies. Requires a sacrifice to call ordinary folk and not just surround yourself with the best of the best. To respect, I know women and children in Paul and Jesus' day and age, that was a sacrifice many people didn't do and willing to die to include others. In other words, that's agape. That is the life that we are called to. Now, Paul, how does that come about? Because that's a pretty tall order. Well, Paul says there's a couple of things. One is a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Let's look at this really quick because I, I think this is going to help us as we move out into our world. 
A pure heart. The Greek phrase there is katharos cardias. Cardia, cardiovascular, right? So cardia is the word for heart. But, katharos. What does that sound like? Any English word sound like katharos? Cathartic, did somebody say? Yeah, I heard somebody say cathartic. Cathartic. Now, I want you to think about this, because it's not a word we use all the time. But think about a time when you were maybe in a lot of grief. And it just seemed like there was so much that you just couldn't get it out. That the tears wouldn't fall. And then something happens. A song plays. Or you're, you're at the grave of your, of your loved one. Or, or the, uh, there's a scene in a movie or a commercial from Hallmark Channel or something. And all of a sudden the tears start to fall. And, and mucus is getting everywhere. It's an ugly cry. And you, you get to the end of it. And you just look terrible. But you feel so good. Or maybe you've had a lot of stress in the office or at school or with your family. And you, and you're, so you go to the gym and you go ten rounds with a punching bag and you give it you all and you exhaust yourself or you get on the treadmill and you set it up to ten and you run your heart out and at the end you're exhausted, but you feel good. That's cathartic. That's when the emotions are unblocked. It's a free path. It's moving. It's there. Everything is out. That's when the heart is, is open and there. Paul says that sacrificial love can only come when the heart is unblocked. Now he's going to show that some of that has to do with things that can block up our heart and get in the way of the relationship between us and God or us and others. And that is things where we miss the mark, a hamartia, where we sin. But it can also be how we view ourselves and look to, to, to get all of who we are, knowing who we are, out and flowing so that is open for us to be in our world that comes from a good conscience, and that, that word is synodeus. And it means knowing what is right and wrong within ourselves, and connecting that to what God sees in us. That's that sin, that's like synthesis, pulling those two together. Right and wrong within ourselves, we have a very honest viewpoint of ourselves, and we merge that, or that's pulled together with how God sees us, which is of great, great value. And those things can only come from a sincere faith. Pistuos is the word for faith. Can I just say one more time? I know I say this all the time. Faith is not about what you believe up here in your head. That's a part of it, but that's not all of it. Faith is an action. Faith is a verb. It is something that I trust. I trust, I have faith that this stair will support me as I stand here. And I'm, so I'm standing on it. And I can jump on it. And it will hold me. It is an action. And it is an unhypocritu. What does hypocrite sound like? Hypocritu. Hypocrite. On is the negative, so unhypocritical. That is, opposite of hypocrite is sincere, right? Is unhypocritical. It means that I fully trust that God loves people, me and you, like Jesus did. How did Jesus love people? He loved them sacrificially. And then my faith action is that I will love them like that too. Do you see how this works all together? Moving to move us 
to live the life in the Spirit that allows us to love sacrificially like Jesus did. So as we close, I want you to know that Christian leaders know the goal and they keep on repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. I was reading a book that said the leader of this giant corporation that had you know billions of dollars in their budget. And he said, I feel like my one and only goal is to keep repeating to this department and that department. This is our goal. This is our plan. These are our values. This is what I do. And he said, if I ever get tired of repeating those things, it's probably time for me to get out. And so I want you to know, as the person who's called to be your leader, I never get tired of reminding you, you are called to love. That's why we have made our motto that we are disciples of Jesus, making disciples of Jesus. Because we are called to love, and by loving sacrificially, with open, unblocked hearts, with a conscience that sees our, our, ourselves and our weaknesses merged with God and the way God loves, and we faith ground our feet on the fact that God loves us that way, and God loves them that way, and wants to call them in. These are our values. This is what we're called to. And I will remind you of that over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And if I ever get tired, it's time for me to go. I believe that. I love this quote from Bill Hall. It says, The way of Jesus is one of community and submission. Service and patience in that community. Jesus' way is the road of humility, living in a state of brokenness for God, from God, for God, before God, which is an unblocked heart. Jesus' way is a people anxious to depend on God rather than on competence alone. Does that sound like a church you'd like to attend? One that is anxious to depend on God. So where are you called to remain? Are you on the fence with your family? With your marriage? With a job? Dare I say, with a church? What is God saying to you about remaining? Is God calling you to rebuke? Now please, 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 do not rebuke unless you know that the goal is love. Is to see love flourish. Don't do it because you think the drums are too loud and you want to be more comfortable. Don't do it because it's too cold or it's too hot or you didn't sing the song I want. That, that's not the rebuke I'm talking about. To rebuke is to rebuke because you, you need to see more love flourish. Only do it if you can do it with love in your heart. Don't do it when you're angry. And only do it if you plan to remain. <laughs> I've even seen pastors who, who are on their way out and they take the last four weeks to just do all the rebuking they can. <laughs> you missed it here, you missed it there, you know. Blah, blah, blah. And people just sit there with their shields up, covering their heart, waiting for them to go. So only do rebuking if you can fill, fulfill those things. Has something in this teaching, some myth, has it rebuked some myth in your life? These are questions I want you to take home with you. Do you know the goal? Have you been reminded today what this goal is? And are you called to lead somewhere? If so, will you? Will you lead? Would you stand 
And let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want us to pray. Father, messages like these are always difficult. In some ways, because we like our own views and opinions, myself included. And boy, have you hammered me this week, challenged my thinking. But I want to be a person. And I want to be a pastor and I want to be a leader who knows that the goal is sacrificial love. Whose heart is open and unblocked. Whose conscience knows my weaknesses but knows the glory of Your strength and the power of Your Spirit. that dares to take actions, to have faith that's unhypocritical, that knows that as deeply as you love me, you love the surrounding community. And you're calling me in good conscience and with an unblocked heart to walk out and find ways to remain, to find ways to challenge myths that that create more love. You're calling us. So I pray for the husband that's ready to leave. That you would call him to remain. I pray for the wife who's got one foot out the door. I pray that you would help her to in love begin to rebuke what is what has gone awry. I pray for the student who's about to go back into school that lives by different values and sees people's worth based on what they think. I pray for those students that as they go back, they will realize that the goal of their life as a follower of Christ is to show love and compassion sacrificially, to move to the other side of the cafeteria, to go to the non-cool table, to be a friend to those with challenges. And I pray that You would call us as church members to be a body of believers who are anxious to depend on God, knowing that He is our living hope. So Father, continue to call us as we look at these letters that challenge us to lead, truly lead. And help us to do that hearts wide open, conscience clear, standing in faith in Your love. For we ask this in the name of the One who showed us, didn't just teach us, but showed us the depth of Your love. It's in His name, the name of Jesus, we pray and ask all these things. And everyone said, Amen. I want to bless you as you go, but I want to close it by by just a... I want to close the blessing with the words that Timothy continues to remind. And so now I pray that you, my brothers and sisters, would lead. That you would lead because you know that the goal is sacrificial, unselfish love. 
I pray that you would know that your call is to be anxious to depend on the God who is faithful. I pray that God would unblock your heart, clear your conscience, and cause actions, faith actions, to come out in the way you interact with each other, in your jobs, in your schools, and in your families. And Paul, I want to use his words, Now, to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Go in His name. Go and love. You are dismissed.